California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground Podcast. I am back from my travels. It's been two weeks. Thank you to Camille last week for hosting the episode with Amy Reichart. Uh, it was a great episode. Sean Fredrickson as well. Thank you for hopping on while I was away. Uh, my travels caught up with me, and I'm a little sick. The jet lag between Europe and California got to me, so that's not the point of this episode, though. we got much more important things to talk about tonight. That's why we have John Dillon on the show attorney dylan law gp he's behind the ruling that just came out huge earth shattering second amendment news the assault weapons ban in california has been deemed unconstitutional and for all those watching or listening right now saying yes we already knew that well that's it's because we have a new supreme court ruling and john's going to get into all that so john welcome to the show how are you doing tonight yeah thanks for having me i'm doing well uh, <laughs> awesome. So, uh, why don't you do a little bit to introduce yourself, tell people who you are and how you got involved in like this area of law, um, and okay, what you've yeah. been doing in it so far. So, uh, all right. Well, my name is John Dillon. I'm the principal partner of the Dillon law group in Carlsbad, California, uh, born and raised in Southern California, San Diego, went to law school, uh, Loyola law school. Uh, funnily enough, I kind of owe it to California for my career. Uh, in law school, I had a big period of time in between the classes where, you know, uh, I didn't want to go and research or, you know, read in the library. And I didn't want to drive back through LA traffic to get home. So I actually started shooting at the LA gun club, uh, because it was down the street from my law school. So after a little while doing that, got into shooting, bought my first gun, a little time after that, I you know started tinkering with the gun. You know, everyone buys a Glock, and you know can't actually leave it the way it is. So, I switched the barrel out, uh, try to get a match grade barrel or something like that. And I was on a online forum back then, and you know someone tells me that I committed a felony in California because I changed the barrel on my pistol. And you know the 21 year old me panics, I freak out. I race you know, into the law school library, start trying to research the penal code, figuring out what my legal defense is going to be because I figured the ATF and the DOJ were going to, you know, climb through the window, kick my, down my door and, you know, shoot my dog. So uh, I am reading this law, trying to figure out like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Learn that, in fact, I didn't actually commit a felony by changing the barrel on my pistol. But while reading these laws, I started to be like, well, that's kind of a stupid law. Well, why are they doing that? Why do they require you to wait 10 days? Like, what the hell is a cooling off period? Uh, you know, just all sorts of stuff. Like, what's a handgun roster? Why is the blue Colt Python okay, but the silver one's illegal and, you know, not safe? Uh, so that kind of just turned into a weird obsession while I was in law school because, you know, when you're in law school, I don't know if you had the same experience, but... When I was in there, when they came across the Second Amendment, they were like, uh, a well-regulated militia, uh, basically that allows you to keep and bear arms as long as you're part of a militia, and that's about all we need to say. And then they just moved on. I think we spent more time uh, on the Third Amendment than we did on the Second Amendment, uh, you know, in every other amendment. But um, so 
that obsession just rolled into after I got my license to practice law. I started working uh, down in San Diego and uh, somehow convinced the partners of my old firm that, hey, you know, California is a you know insane place when it comes to gun laws. And there's not a lot of attorneys that are really practicing strictly in firearms laws. Uh, so I think there's a little market here and I think I can I can do something. And shortly after I convinced them to do that, I just started rolling in it and uh, trying to find clients, figure it out, just learn the law myself. Uh, and I met up with uh, Michael Schwartz with San Diego County Gun Owners uh, right after the time where he just kind of created that and hooked up with him, uh, you know, like-minded individuals and uh, went on from there. And then around actually the start of COVID, uh, I left my old firm and I started my own firm that we, you know, our main focus is uh, firearms regulation. That's kind of how I got here. So obviously when you went in and researched in the, in the law library and the more you dug, um, you started to realize how utterly stupid all these gun laws are and how none of them make sense. Yeah, correct? It, it was, yeah, it was crazy. You know, uh, as someone who I, I admit when I was my first year in law school, I didn't know anything about constitution. I didn't know anything about the second amendment. You know, I had a vague interest in guns before I started buying guns uh, and started shooting, but you know, uh, I was woefully ignorant and I, I would say I was woefully ignorant, like a lot of the you know population in California when it comes to, you know, their fundamental rights, uh, unfortunately. And, um, so just started reading this stuff and not really having an opinion or a position, whether it be left or right, or, you know, pro gun, anti gun. I, I quite literally started reading the, the penal code thinking that I needed to come up with my own legal defense. And so I think reading through everything, I really had an objective view uh, of these laws when I read them for the first time and just over and over again, you know, you, you, you read these things and they, do, they don't make any common sense. They, there's no rational basis for it. Uh, and it just perplexed me uh, going through it all. And then I started reading about stories of people get, actually getting in trouble and, you know, getting arrested and having convictions based off of these weird technicalities when it comes to gun laws. And I thought that was just an absurd process. And, you know, uh, as my wife say, I just, uh, I delved in deep into the obsession uh, in law school. And uh, it's the, the thing that keeps me going, you know, being a lawyer is not always fun. Uh, it's not like the, the TV shows, <laughs> but uh, when you get to do stuff like the second amendment, it's, it's always a good time. Yeah. And uh, I can agree with you there. It's not always glamorous like suits or anything like that a lot of yeah, it's I, a lot I don't of desk really have a lot of alcoholic drinks in the middle of the afternoon on a work day they, I, don't, I see that a lot but uh i've never experienced that yeah i've never had the martini lunch like people always say or the the liquid lunch yeah um but speaking of ridiculous uh gun laws and how silly and they don't make any sense let's pivot now to obviously this huge ruling uh miller versus bonta which you were a part of um, yeah. And this is a, a law that I think most Second Amendment people in California looked at this law and said, this makes absolutely no sense. Um, you can tell it was written by people who don't understand guns. And mm -hmm. I will admit, I was reading the decision today. I got through about 50% of it um, because there's just so much there uh, that Benitez put in the decision. Um, mm -hmm. But let, let's let's start at the beginning. 
um, how you got involved in this specific case and how you attacked it against the state and sort of what was your strategy? Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, I worked with the Firearms Policy Coalition, the Second Amendment Foundation, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the San Diego County Gun Owners uh, Association. So, you know, uh, we all got together and, and, you know, it was, you know, determined that, hey, you know, we got to challenge this assault weapons ban. Uh, at the time, uh, the Rupp case w uh, was recently filed. Um, that was the challenge to the assault rifle provisions in the Central District uh, of California. And, uh, you know, the thought was like, no, we got to challenge the whole thing. You know, this is ridiculous. Uh, you know, we, we go through iteration and <clears throat> iteration of, of, you know, what an assault weapon is. I mean, if you go back to the, the beginning, the 1989 Assault Weapons Act in California, you know, they banned guns based off of their make and model, the, the, the named guns, the named assault weapons. Uh, you know, after, you know, so many years of that, the state was like, well, we're, we're not stopping people from buying these guns because they're buying guns under, you know, with different names. So how else can we ban a large group of guns, you know, without having to name them each individually, you know, by make and model? So they determined that, okay, well, we'll just ban them based off of, you know, their various features or their characteristics. And that was back in 2000. And that's when you get the first iteration of, you know, a semi-automatic center fire rifle with, you know, pistol grip, you know, folding collapsible stock, vertical foregrip, flash hider, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we filed in, in 2019 challenging, uh, you know, the full gambit of the Assault Weapons Control Act, all the definitions, including rifles, pistols, shotguns. Uh, and the strategy was this, you know, we had DCV Heller, you know, it came out in 2008. And, you know, ever since I first read, you know, that case, it seemed pretty clear on, you know, how uh, the analysis should go. You know, we unfortunately had a good decade uh, or more of a time where, you know, the Ninth Circuit and other, you know, courts of appeals, they made up this weird concocted analysis of how they determine whether uh, a gun control law actually violates the Second Amendment. And funnily enough, it always seemed to end up to where the state was somehow able to justify any one of these bans. Um, so we knew we were going up against that, uh, you know, scheme. And we, we knew that, uh, you know, we we're going to have an uphill battle from the very beginning, but we thought the time was right. Uh, you know, it needed to be challenged. And th the fact was, is we did have, we've always had Supreme court precedent on our side when it comes to DCV Heller, it was just a matter of getting a court to hear and understand, uh, and truly apply what the precedent was, uh, when it comes to, you know, can you ban guns that are in common use? So that was kind of the beginning stages of it. Uh, and again, we filed in 2019 and went from there. And uh, the Bruin decision, which came out uh, was last year now, uh, mm. that obviously was a game changer completely. It it, it changed the landscape uh, you know, in every way when it came to Second Amendment cases. And you know, I, I think a lot of times you know, when it came out, the media and the press and everyone's talking about the concealed carry, you know, conclusion and the fact that New York can no longer require good cost for concealed carry and then how that's going to be, uh, you know, have an effect across the country. But, you know, and I'm sure you noticed this as well, but anyone who kind of has been following Second Amendment cases, following, you know, the dissenting opinions when uh, Red Sertrari gets rejected, you know, from Justice Thomas, they saw the writing on the wall that, you know, 
the test that the lower courts were using was wrong. And when we got the Bruin decision, we got a complete rejection of this made up test. Um, and it really pulled things back to enforce is now forcing lower courts to apply a standard that's much harder to get around than what they were previously working with. So this case uh, <clears throat> had gone up and the Supreme Court had remanded it back down because of the Bruin decision. So, yeah, what happened is uh, we filed for a preliminary injunction in the district court. Uh, we had an eviden evidentiary hearing on that. Additional briefing was submitted. And uh, we actually then had a, you know, a hearing, a trial, where we ha had witnesses, testified, cross-examined you know, experts, all that, submitted all our evidence. And then the court consolidated that and, and did, made it a hearing on the merits. And so we had a full trial. Uh, on the merits for determining whether the Assault Weapon Control Act was constitutional. Uh, the district court came back and said that, you know, no, this is not constitutional and it was going to be enjoined. Now, that was all pre-Bruin. So this is before the Bruin test. We were actually successful and we were that, the first uh, district court in the country to come back with a decision that an assault weapons ban was unconstitutional. So that was a big win, uh, especially considering the fact that Bruin hadn't even come out yet. Uh, shortly after we got that decision, just like kind of we're seeing today, the, the state appealed and then they also went for uh, an emergency motion to stay the decision pending appeal. And so what that basically means when the, you know, they're asking to stay opinion is the district court came out and said this law is unconstitutional. In 10 days, this, goes, this decision goes into effect and the assault weapons ban will no longer be enforceable by you know, the DOJ and police. So the state came in, they asked for an emergency motion to stay. And that means you got to put a pause on that, put a pause on the decision uh, until we go through the court of appeals and the court of appeals looks at the case. Um, that stay was granted by the court of appeals. And then shortly after that happened, though, the Bruin decision came. And so before any briefing on the merits on appeal happened, we, we, you know, no one did an opening brief, no opposition, no reply. Uh, we never actually made any arguments of any kind in front of the Court of Appeals. The case was vacated and remanded back down to the district court uh, to be you know, consistent with Bruin decision. And that happened to, I want to say, almost every single Second Amendment case that was going through the courts, a lot of uh, courts of appeals remanded their cases back down the district court because like I said earlier before Bruin they were applying this test you know it's a two-part test with a sliding scale is kind of how uh, the the district court in our case categorized it but basically it was a balancing of interests uh, where the court or the state would basically say well these are the reasons why we have the ban we think it's for public safety we think it'll save everybody not really offering any real concrete evidence that it would do that. But under the old standard, courts would be like, well, the reasoning that the, you know, the state has to, to stop mass shootings and you know, to protect public safety, those are good reasons. Uh, and so we uphold the law. And that was essentially what the, the test was. And so when it came back down, the courts were like, look, you got to now apply the Bruin standard because you know, the decision in Bruin outright rejected this balancing test, said you cannot balance the interest, you cannot do any type of means and scrutiny analysis. Um, and so we went back in front of the district court 
the funny thing was is that the way we argued the case uh and you know in fact the way the case the decision first came out is the district court actually applied the Bruin test before the Bruin test was uh labeled that uh he, they called it the the Heller test and it was a factual matter of like are these firearms in common use if they're common use then they can't be banned and that's the end of the story and so the the court actually came up with that decision on its own before Bruin but then it also applied this old uh ninth circuit or you know, court of appeals standard where they balance the interests and still came out in our favor so after it came back down court requested some additional briefing to specifically address what Bruin said uh, we submitted multiple briefs on that, uh, summarizing and you know, analyzing the case and its applicability to our case at hand. Uh, went back and forth. Uh, let's see. I think there was two, a brief, a supplemental brief, and then responses to each of those briefs that were all provided to the court, all addressing Bruin. And then in December of last year, the court actually called for uh, a hearing conference where he brought in uh, all parties. In fact, they brought in the parties for the Fouts case, the Duncan case. This was, That was the recent magazine ban case. Uh, the Rody case, which is a challenge to California's ammunition regulation. So they were all in front of the same court. So he called everyone in. And uh, at that hearing, he told the state, look, I'm going to give you a few months. I want you to compile any and all laws, historical laws that you have, that you can find that would justify this ban. And so, uh, you know, in a couple months time, give me a list. I want the date of the law, what the law was, what it did, if it was ever uh, challenged in court, if it was ever uh, held unconstitutional, if it was ever repealed. I just want a giant list of all the laws that you think you know, support this ban. Uh, and then about January, February of this year, they submitted uh, a big old pile of uh, laws. I think it was around 316 laws over that covered a, over a 500 year period of time. And, you know, the state was like, this is our, you know, justification for the assault weapons ban. The court actually issued a minute order after that stating now that I have the survey, I want the state to identify the most relevant analogous regulation of for the assault of man that would justify it. So give me your best law that you say justifies the assault weapons ban and, and let me know uh, what that is. And the state came back and stated that I think it was a 1771 New Jersey law uh, regulating trap guns or booby traps. And that was the reason that the state can now ban the possession, use, transfer, ownership, sale of uh, assault weapons. And it, you know, not shocking to me and, you know, all of us working on the case because, you know, we, we looked at these laws and we saw them and read Bruin. But, you know, you'd think with the, the entire power of, of the state using all our tax money and hiring all these experts they'd be able to come up with more than just a single law that didn't even regulate trap guns. It just regulate setting them up and killing certain game animals with them. So that, that was the big, uh, you, know, you know, justification for their, for the law. And 
because of that, we got the decision we did a couple days ago. Before the, I ask my next question, what was the rationale that this trap gun or, or trap uh, had anything to do with the assault weapons ban? What was their rationale for that? Yeah, so the rationale was that this 1771 trap gun regulation was uh, a sufficiently analogous regulation on the regulation of dangerous and unusual weapons. Uh, and because of that, they can now regulate any weapon that they deem dangerous and unusual today. Me saying that's assault weapons. Um, and, and it's funny, we got the, the court actually addresses, specifically addresses this issue and, and goes and looks up the entirety of the law that they reference and actually kind of calls it out saying, this isn't even a regulation on the ownership and possession of trap guns. Under this law, you can buy, sell, transfer, own, possess, and even use trap guns. You just can't set these trap guns in order to hunt certain game animals. And uh, so to say that that law is the equivalent of the assault weapons ban, which it makes it a felony to own a gun that has a pistol grip or a flash hider or an adjustable stock, it's just an absurd leap in logic. And anyone who has any objective standard whatsoever can't look at those things and be like, okay, that, that doesn't work, you know? Now, before we, we kind of dive more into this specific ruling, I, I think it's important for listeners to understand how impactful Bruin was. So when Bruin came out, I had read the decision and said, this is great for carry and conceal, but this is an earthquake for Second Amendment jurisprudence across the country because they changed the whole test. So can you go into a little bit for, for people to understand why is Bruin so big and so monumental and why is it changing everything now? Yeah, so it, it's really true. The, the The change in the standard of how courts are going to look at Second Amendment cases, uh, you know, you, you said it was an earthquake. Yeah, it was Mount Vesuvius, you know, Pompeii eruption, in my opinion. Um, that the the fact that the court explicitly called out this old two part test that was being you know used by a majority of the courts across the country of uh, the lower courts across the country were applying this two part test to Second Amendment cases, um, and it was to say it was an uphill battle uh, you know for gun rights was is a huge understatement under that test. Uh, like I said earlier literally any justification uh, that the state could come up with was sufficient to justify any type of gun regulation. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, there's a case, Sylvester v. Harris, back in 2016, where uh, they were challenging the 10-day the waiting period in California. And the unique thing about this case is you had plaintiffs that were concealed carry holders and or gun owners. So every one of the plaintiffs challenging the law was already owned a gun or literally had a gun on their hip while they were going into a store to buy another gun. Uh, and the argument that they made was like, look, we go in and we instantly pass the background check. We have a gun on our hip. You know, we're law-abiding citizens. There should be no need for a 10-day wait if we've already passed the background check, especially since, you know, uh, 
we have a gun and cooling off. What are we going to cool off from? If we wanted to commit a crime, I'd use the gun that's on my hip or I'd use the, you know, 10 guns I have at home. So they made these arguments to the court and uh, the state's response to this was uh, along the lines of, well, you know, uh, if they wanted to commit a crime with a new gun, the cooling off period would help. And I don't think I need to really go into a lot of detail on that. But uh, so they said, you know, they still need the cooling off period. And in that case, they actually didn't present any evidence ever that the cooling off period has ever stopped a crime, made someone change their mind, anything like that. So that's the situation you're in. The court heard all this and said, yep, that's sufficient justification. That's a good, you know, public safety law. Uh, this was under the old standard. So. It was arguments like that that were being upheld under this old standard. It was just anything the state said was justifiable. So now Bruin comes along and says, this entire test that they're employing, where you're balancing interests, you know, uh, and addressing uh, court cases by uh, applying uh, levels of scrutiny, whether it be rational basis, intermediate, or strict scrutiny, uh, that entire scheme is outright rejected. You cannot use this test. Uh, and instead, you have to make your, the test is based off text and history. And it's very simple. It says this, if the plain text of the Second Amendment covers the conduct in question, then it's presumptively protected by the Second Amendment. Then the, it shifts, the burden shifts to the government that they have to then go and identify historical analogous regulations from the founding era that would justify the current ban. So completely different situation than what it was. It used to be the burden was on us. You know, we had to try to decipher all this mumbo jumbo junk science expert testimony that the, the states would use to justify these bans. And, you know, courts would always rule in their favor because basically any justification was enough. That's now gone. Now you look at the Texas Second Amendment. It's very simple. Does that cover the conduct in question? Yes. Okay. Now the burden's on the government. We don't do anything. And the government has to prove that their law is justified by going back and finding relevant and analogous laws. And what I mean by that is laws that are, you know, relevant, relevantly similar that would then say like, okay, for example, if they uh, prohibited the ownership and possession of firearms of certain guns uh, during the founding era, you know, muskets or, uh, you know, even cannons or Gatling guns, well, then that would show that, oh, at least in the founding, there was some laws where the government was permitted to regulate the ownership and possession of firearms. Well, the thing is, there is no, there's no law of any kind that prohibited the possession of firearms, any firearm uh, during the founding era. And I don't think, uh, I believe in the decision, the court states that according to one expert, the first outright ban on the possession of a firearm was in 1911. So that's a far cry from founding era and it does not show a historical tradition of firearms regulation. And because of that, the law is unconstitutional. Um, so this new test where it just throws away all the garbage science, garbage opinions, uh, that used to be employed is 
massive in, in the you know the fight for Second Amendment rights. It truly has changed the game. Uh, I believe it's going to result in an era where you know bans on possession of firearms are just not going to be able to be done. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, and how did this? Uh, I mean, I read the decision and. How, what, just give us a synopsis of how Benitez arrived at his decision in this Miller case using Bruin. Yeah, I mean, uh, the decision's awesome. It's, a, it's amazingly well-written. Uh, almost every instance, every statement is supported by factual evidence uh, in the record. Uh, and there, there's no big leaps in logic or conclusions or anything like that. But uh, you know, it's very simple, just like kind of what I laid out. Uh, the, the decision starts off with, you know, let's go with the plain text of the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. You know, what is an arm? It's any weapon for offense or defense. Uh, and so it's very clear. These guns, they're arms, they're firearms. They easily fall within the plain text of the Second Amendment. So therefore, they're going to be protected by the Second Amendment. So now we shift the, you know, the burden goes to the state. And they, and they now have the burden to justify this ban. So now we got to look at the historical context to, you know, to justify the law. But the thing is with DCV Heller, it already did the historical analysis when it came to firearms bans. Because when you go back to the Heller case, you see that, you know, uh, Washington, D.C. was trying to ban the possession of handguns. DCV Heller, the court Supreme Court back then, they went back and they already did the historical approach and said, well, based off of our historical review, the only firearms or the only arms that can be banned are those that are both dangerous and unusual. And if it's not dangerous and unusual, it can't be banned. Uh, and at that time, they were talking about handguns and handguns. You know, everyone has said they're the quintessential self-defense weapon. The public has overwhelmingly chosen handguns. Uh for any lawful purpose, whether it be self-defense, excuse me, re uh, recreation, you know, shooting, hunting, all that. Um, so because of that, they're in common use, can't ban them. Uh, we had a pure curium opinion written in the Caetano case that later came out and that reiterated this, you know, dangerous and unusual uh, test and said that, uh, it's both. It has to be both dangerous and unusual in order to be prohibited because, you know, if it was dangerous or unusual or, you know, if you could just ban any arm that was dangerous, well, then the state could jump in and just ban everything, whether it's a Swiss Army knife or, you know, uh, F-16. Everything's dangerous. If an arm is dangerous, that you know, they'd ban it. Well, that can't be the case. And so uh, the Catano court literally said this is a conjunctive test. It's both dangerous and unusual. Uh, and in addressing that test, they said, well, an arm that is in common use cannot be, you know, dangerous and unusual because it's in common use. Um, so that's the test. And, uh, you know, so that historical analysis already done. Uh, the court applied that test, uh, you know, using Bruin citing to those cases and said that there's quite literally no justification for the assault weapons ban. Uh, and although I think he didn't need to, uh, the, the decision also goes into uh, a lot of the various arguments that the state made that still go, um, would still fall under the interest balancing test that was outright rejected by Bruin. 
Um, but he still kind of addresses those issues as a, just in case you were wondering, at least that's how I read it. Um, and really picks apart uh, everything that, uh, you know, the main arguments that the state made and, and shows that there really is no justification. Yeah. One of the things that uh, Benitez really paints a, a, a picture of when he breaks down the numbers in the decision, he talks about how many AR 15s are in the country and how many crimes are committed with AR 15s. And it's something like point zero 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 i don't know how many zeros but like a bunch of zeros nine four three seven i think so, there's five zeros i think it's point zero 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 eight seven percent uh and that's and, if you assume that every single homicide that's committed with a rifle is an assault weapon so yeah. i think the the other way he put it was 99.9999932 percent of AR-15s are used for lawful purposes in this country. Uh, and I think that was in direct response to an argument that the state uh, continued to make throughout uh, litigation that, uh, you know, assault weapons are disproportionately used in crimes and all this stuff. And it's like, well, no, they're not. <laughs> uh, quite literally, take the worst crime there is, homicide. You take every single long gun, that's ever you know been used in a crime at least since in 2021 that's 274 i think or 474 i forget the the number but that's in the entire country with 330 million people you had under 500 homicides that were committed with any type of rifle so to say that assault weapons are this major uh you know catastrophic weapon of mass destruction thing it's just factually incorrect and there's no basis to make any type of claim and it really just shows you know these arguments are fear-mongering they, they they're they're for the headlines they're for news they're for people to read uh, at a glance and just assume like oh yeah well i guess we have a huge problem with assault weapons and people are dying um but the the, the fact is that it just is not supported by any uh, reality or any evidence one of my favorite uh, lines, which comes from the conclusion, is that California's answer to the criminal misuse of a few is to disarm its many good residents. That knee-jerk reaction is constitutionally untenable, just as it was 250 years ago. The Second Amendment stands as a shield from government imposition of that policy. And I think that's so true that it, it just, like you're saying, they take fear-mongering where they take one tiny, tiny little case where one bad guy does something. So the knee-jerk reaction of a lot of those on the left is, well, let's just take all the guns away because obviously no one can be trusted with guns, even though it's just one person out of how many millions of people own guns and nothing happens when you have lawfully, uh, lawful good citizens who own firearms. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I in the work that I've done, I, I've come to the conclusion that um, you know, and I'm sure there's some people that will agree with me on this. Uh, these laws are not meant for our safety. They're not meant to, to make our world a better place. Uh, they just, they're not written that way. They're not implemented that way. They don't do anything to actually help good law-abiding people. Um, you know, and it's funny, uh, in the decision, it, it actually references this fact. Um, if I remember correctly, let's see. Um, who was it 
I think it was a reference to one of the experts in the case. Um, let's see. I think I have it here so I can. It's just amazing it's like to me. Effects. You're bored. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> No, no, it's fine. It just sounds like 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 fake sound effects. We like added in. Like, here's some. Yeah, keys. it's uh, <laughs> it's a a loud keyboard. I'll say that. Yeah. So it was. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So John Donahue, I think, uh, made the claim that the, these laws they're meant to be implemented at an incremental basis, and I think that kind of tips the hand uh, of the state is. This isn't about like, hey, we'll make this law and this is what we believe will help people save people. It's no, no, no. We want this. This is our goal. No guns, no private ownership of guns. We know we can't do that. Uh, you know, that'll send up some red flags. And even a lot of people that are more uh, liberal or leftist or anti-gun will even say, well, you can't just outright ban all ownership of guns. You know, we do live in the United States and we do have a Second Amendment. So instead of doing that, they implement a law and then they change that law and they implement it, make it a little more restrictive and they go forward and, you know, incrementally make it bigger and broader. And we've literally seen that with the implementation of the Assault Weapon Control Act in California. In 1989, you had a limited list of firearms that were considered assault weapons. 2000, now, now, now we changed that. It's not just those weapons that are sole weapons. It's any weapon that has these features. And then after a few years, it's not any weapon that has these features. It's also weapons that have these features as well. And then we get to 2018. I think uh, in 2020 even, uh, they changed the law again while we're in litigation, defining an assault firearm uh, because there's a couple of uh, there's a development of a couple guns that didn't have rifling, but they were shoulder fired uh, guns. And so they didn't uh, qualify as a rifle. They didn't qualify as a shotgun. They didn't qualify as a pistol under California law. So they were just a firearm. And so they changed the law again and be like, okay, those are assault weapons too. Uh, and so you can see how every iteration of this ban, they expand the definition of what constitutes an assault weapon. And every single time, they just try to lump in more and more uh, into that definition. So it's telling in, in and of itself. It just shows you that, okay, they're not going to stop this. You think that, you know, they're going to stop defining what an assault weapon is in 2021? No. That in a couple more years, they'll redefine it and do it again. Um, you know, we've seen that with, uh, you know, we have the challenge to the roster requirements uh, and actually a successful challenge to the roster requirements and the micro stamping. Well, you already have, even though the micro stamping was held to be unconstitutional and they weren't going to enforce that, you already have a new bill. I don't, I, I gotta, I'll be admit, I don't know if he was even passed or still being proposed that addresses micro stamping in the future and implementing that later on. It's like, did they pass it? Yeah. So um, you see, I'll, I'll admit Although, even someone working in this field, they pass these laws so often, it's hard for me to even keep track sometimes. It's crazy. I have a list of like recent ones that Newsom signed. So I'll, I'll look and I'll, I'll let you guys know when I have the answer. Yeah. And if, you know, speaking of our, uh, you know, our governor, you know, the fact that he's repeatedly said 
that he will sign any gun control measure that comes across his desk. I mean, if you think about the implications of a statement like that, that, that's an absurd thing to say. You're Mm -hmm. saying you're going to sign things into legislation, into law, that you don't even know what it says. And to make a commitment like that just shows that, uh, you know, he has no respect for your rights, my rights, the Constitution, or even, you know, due process in, in how this country is supposed to work. It's it's disheartening uh, and it's frustrating to, to put that in good, uh, appropriate language. Yeah. And they're always, like you said, they're always encroaching like the, the recent. I don't know when they passed it, but it was it was if you add a handgun to the roster, you have to take like two off. So it was like slowly but surely, yeah. like there won't be any handguns left because they'll add one, take two off. Add it. So it's it's these little things that if you're not paying attention slowly but surely, we'll all just be running around with like, you know, small 22 like pea shooters. And that's the only thing that we can use to defend ourselves. Um, nothing wrong with people who prefer yeah. 22s, but, you know, that's that's where it's going. Um, one of our good friends, Osvaldo from Trigger, Triggerology in the chat says, John, I just found out my city's police department in Pomona is using May issue language in their CCW application and subjective good moral character and discretionary psych evaluations. Now, is that constitutional under Bruin or not? I would say no, not at all. Um, and in fact, I I just saw something, I believe it was Gun Owners of America, stating something along the lines of the good moral character requirement in New York's uh, concealed carry requirements was just struck down. I don't know. It was literally a headline. I glanced at it right before I jumped on here. But yeah, uh, yeah th- th- there's no way that those subjective tests can uh, withstand any type of scrutiny under the Bruin test. Uh, and Bruin actually explicitly states in, in the decision that, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, the the CCW test, they need to be applied in an objective standard. Uh, and you cannot use subjective requirements that can vary and change Uh and this good moral character uh, is a horribly subjective uh, requirement. Like, well, what is good moral character? Does it mean you've never committed a crime? Does it mean you have a bunch of reference letters? Does, you know, you got to get the pastor of your church to say like, yeah, this guy goes to church on Sunday. Every Sunday never misses a, a beat. I really, you know, tell me what good moral character is in the eyes of the state. Uh, that's not entirely subjective. And, I haven't seen uh, any language uh, in any type of CCW requirement with this uh, good moral good moral character requirement that's not subjective. I, I believe a lot of counties and the sheriffs, their unwritten opinion is good moral character is you're not uh, you don't have any convictions of any serious crimes. Um, but again, even that is okay. Well. What kind of crime would make you ineligible for a CCW? Is it only nonviolent crimes? Is it some misdemeanors, all felonies? What's that? Um, So I I don't believe that this good moral character approach is constitutional in any way. I think that the psych evaluation, uh, again, is even more uh, subjective. And anyone who's, you know, sits there and goes, well, you know, if you have a 
psychiatrists, they, they have their professional opinion and they give it, um, you know, that, that seems like a pretty objective standard. You have a medical professional making a determination. The fact is anyone who's dealt with expert testimony knows that I can find an expert for any, for any opinion A. I can then go find an expert for the exact opposite opinion B. Uh, there is no shortage of shortage of experts that will have contrasting opinions. And it's why we call it the battle of the experts. When you do uh, have that in litigation, you know, there's always an expert that'll say something different than another one. So it, it's not objective in any way uh, to require psyche valves. Uh, and I, I don't believe that they would withstand any type of uh, real Bruin analysis at all. So Hit me up, send me an email, let me know what the language is. Um, I mean, we did just live through two years. Oh, go ahead, Camille. Sorry, I just to go back to is SB 452, and Newsom did sign it that requires the micro stamping, including on ghost gun parts. Yeah, and it's like, you know, they've never even shown that micro stamping can be implemented on a fire. There's not even a single prototype in this country that it even works, let alone the fact that you can file off any micro stamping with a 99 cent file in about three seconds. It's not like this is ever going to help, uh, but yeah. So, uh, but going back to the, the CCW stuff. Yeah. I think that County sheriffs really need to go back and review what standards they have. Um, you know, although a lot of them went back and got rid of the, the good cause requirement, uh, they need to go back again and, and really look at what Bruin says and look at what their requirements are because I, I don't see any justification for uh, those types of requirements of moral character, psyche vows, or letters of recommendation. It's all entirely subjective and it you know, has no support. Yeah, as I was going to say before, we, we did live through about two years where you could get any expert, and I'm putting experts in quote, to get up on TV or, or parrot whatever the state wants them to say. So um, the idea that medical experts can be completely objective and not subjective is, I think, a falsity at this point. I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, yeah. what I if mean, it comes to the point where they're <laughs> yeah, like... If you didn't learn that from COVID... Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you're ever going to learn it, but uh, yeah, there, there's no question that the uh, this is not uh, a matter that can be cited by some you know third party expert or anything like that. So Don't, you should you'll... let your sheriff know or whoever's in charge of the CCW process be like, you need to get rid of this, or else um, you know they might get a lawsuit down the road. Two comments. First, I just looked uh, this. This month, I guess, in the last month or so, Newsom actually signed over 20 laws that are regulating firearms. Um, yeah, I think there's 23 new yeah, ones. And so, uh, you know, uh, Chuck Michelle with the Michelle Associates, they have their uh, California gun laws book. And I remember just when it first came out, you know, he'd do a, a new edition every year, every other year. Now I think they're on their 12th edition because they're ha they're changing the laws so much. He's got to rewrite the book uh, every three to six months. It's absurd. Uh, but I, I laugh at it in the sense of it's just crazy that they got to write additions to this new book so often. Uh, it's, it's absurd. And like I said, 
the laws that they're signing, they're, they're mad that Bruin decided what it did. And they're mad that they can't use this old test and old standard anymore. So because of that, they're just passing anything they can to literally just stick it to gun owners and uh, their citizens. And it's a horrendous thing, but it's true. Now, to kind of give people some hope, because I get this question a lot about, (laughs) well, they keep passing these laws and then we take them to court and then they appeal and then it goes up to the Ninth Circus and then we, we go round and round and round and it never gets resolved. My whole thing is, keep passing these laws because you're just going to build more case precedents and further strengthen second amendment rights. Is that a, a correct way to think about all these laws that are, that they're trying to pass? Um, because it's just going to create yeah. more income I mean, paper supporting our rights. Yeah. I think that's a, a good way of, of looking at it for sure. Because like I was saying, you know, the laws that they're passing, they're just mad. And so they're just passing anything they can. Uh, to the point where it's just, you know, absurdity, you know, I think it's SB2 that's trying to basically make the entire state of California and every public place in the state a, quote, sensitive place where you can't carry it, even if you have a permit to carry. I mean, it's like, that's absurd. You know, we all know that's absurd. Um, So, and and we all know that that's not going to stand under a Bruin analysis. Uh, In fact, like they literally said in Bruin, you can't make the entire island of Manhattan, a sensitive place. It just doesn't work. So, you know, I think that by doing that, they're going to create their own bad precedent. That's true. Um, uh, I also think, you know, if you're mad about having to go to court, fight for your rights, you know, wait the, you know, three to 10 years to get through the court process and then have, you know, the decision in your favor, if that angers you and and you're not doing everything you can to get local representatives and state representatives and federal representatives that are pro second amendment, like in office, then you should just keep your mouth shut and and don't complain because there's a reason why we, we are dealing with this in the long run. It's because for years we just let uh, anti-Second Amendment uh, representatives in the office that had no respect for the Constitution, no respect for your fundamental rights. And we allowed them in office by being complacent. And that's just the truth of the matter. Um, and because of that, we now have individuals and representatives ingrained that are just dishing out this type of legislation. Um, you know, So if you want to play the long game and, and truly win, then you got to be active. At the very least, you got to be voting and know who you're voting for to get people that actually support your rights that would defend the Second Amendment and your other, your other, you know, the other Bill of Rights and your other fundamental rights in office. And if you have those people in office, you're not going to deal with a bunch of laws being passed that violate your rights. So that's the, you know, back it up long game of it all. Uh, if you're not at least being aware of who's running, who's in office, and who you're voting for, it's your own fault. Now, on the other side of that, there's always going to be some laws that are going to be passed, you know, that get through the cracks, even if you have a lot of, you know, good representatives. Um, And we got to go through the court process. 
The fact is we now have a standard that truly applies the Constitution, truly applies the Supreme Court precedent. And so while it is going to be a fight that's going to take a while because you do have to get through court process and you know, the, the, the good thing about you know, that is that we all have you know, due process rights and you, know, you are entitled to appeals. And you know, even though we may not like it, you know, the state's going to appeal these decisions. We're going to have to keep fighting them. But we still have the Constitution, Supreme Court precedent and our evidence on our side. We now have a standard. That is a true application uh, of, you know, the Constitution. So that's benefiting us. Um, so I think we're going to end up on the winning side of this. You know, you add in your point of, yeah, they're going to build bad precedent for themselves, but we're going to continue to get cases that apply the Bruin decision the right way and, you know, determine that these crazy laws are unconstitutional. So, yeah, it's going to be a battle and, you know, the battle's not going to be over tomorrow. but. There, there's no question that the game has completely changed. Um, you know, you talked to me back in 2019, 2020, we would have had a very different conversation of, you know, the outlook. I've always believed in what we, we argue in, in these cases and in this litigation. I believe that they're sound arguments and they're supported by the evidence. But I would have told you, like, this is, a, we're not climbing a hill. We're not, you know, going up a hill for this. This is a, you know, we're free climbing Half Dome, El Capitan. This is how difficult this fight's going to be. The fight's still difficult, but it dramatically has shifted in our favor. Yeah, especially as someone who is a card-carrying uh, CCW uh, holder, SB2 definitely worries me, but I have faith that eventually it'll be yeah, overturned. And, um, so, but it'll just yeah, take time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I don't... Yes, it's not going to be over tomorrow. Uh, yeah, you know, it doesn't change things right away. Uh, but I, this is a, a monumental win uh, to have a case like this come out of the California and the district courts in California. And I think it, it's the start of something good. So we got a couple minutes left. Um, I guess I, the last thing I want to ask you in terms of, you know, it's hard to really kind of sum up. We've, we've touched on so many things. Um, would you give the people who are watching or listening at home, would you say there is reason to be optimistic? Is there a brighter future for Second Amendment rights here in California on the horizon, or is it going to be dark for a little bit longer? Oh, I definitely say there's a brighter future. There's no doubt about that. Like I was saying, the, the landscape has shifted. Uh, it's, you know, the winds are in our favor. Um but that's not to say there's not going to be a dogfight for a little while, especially while we're getting these bills that are being passed just to kind of because they're mad uh, about brewing. So, yeah, there's going to be litigation fights, uh, especially in states like California, wh who tend to be the leaders in passing these you know, unconstitutional laws. We're going to have to settle that out. And that's going to you know, take a while, anywhere from five to 10 years, if you're talking about all the different cases challenging all different laws going up and down the court system. But it's undeniable that even with that fight ahead of us, we are in much, much better territory uh, with the limitation that these courts have now have on them from the Supreme court, that they can't just apply whatever test they want. They can't just, you know, make up any justification uh, that they want to uphold these bans. 
they got to actually go back. It's a, it's a factual matter. They got to go back and find laws that will justify the current law. And it, the, you know, the laws are either there or they're not. If they're not there, there's no justification. So um, this is, it's going to be a lot harder for, you know, states to kind of weasel around and, and uh, get around uh, the Bruin decision, you know, so I think it'll be very beneficial going forward. Awesome. Well, John, um, thank you for coming on tonight and, and kind of dissecting all of this for us. Why don't you tell okay. everybody where they can find you, follow you, interact with you, contact you if they have any second amendment questions. Yeah. So, uh, again, I'm with the Dylan law group in Carlsbad, California. Uh, my email address is jdillon, D-I-L-L-O-N, at dillonlawgp.com. Uh, I also have CA Firearms Lawyer uh, on Instagram, Twitter, or X, whatever it's called now. Um, so you can always contact me in, in any way like that. Um, and yeah, always available to talk guns, no problem at all. Well, I'd like to have you on again uh, when I'm not dying of sickness so uh let's have you on again real soon we could dive into some more legal issues and really get in the weeds about this constitutional stuff um which i love to nerd out about yeah sounds great awesome well as yeah, i, I no, like to, definitely as i like to end every show uh thank you for watching uh camille had to dip out early um but just to end as we end every show uh if you like it make sure you like share subscribe review all of that stuff um, and the best way to support this show that's absolutely free is you can share it with somebody. And in, in this case, share it with someone who's a Second Amendment supporter here in California and share John with them so that they know that they have John as a resource. So with that, uh, have a good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 